0: The New Zealand Security Matters podcast is hosted by Dr Rhys Ball, a former intelligence officer who has gone on to become one of New Zealand's leading commentators on intelligence and security, and Martin Schwartz, a former assistant director in the New Zealand intelligence community. It will challenge and inform, as well as promote mature discussion on New Zealand security and intelligence matters for policymakers, academics, think tanks, politicians, intelligence professionals aspiring intelligence professionals and amateur intelligences alike and here's today's episode
1: right well hello race good to see you again Martin, it's always a pleasure when um, I'm chatting or spending time with you. You're well? I am well. I am well. I didn't expect us to be doing a
0: Christmas bonus, if I'm honest. No, no. Soon be Christmas, Martin. Yes. Soon be Christmas. Yes, we remember that from one of our senior colleagues. Yes, we do. But yeah, Christmas bonus because, gosh, this has gone a lot better than I ever thought after episode uh, one and um, we had you know, we've got the time, so so why not? And so what do I mean by it's gone well? Well, we've had a lot of downloads, we've had a lot of listens. Um, I've looked at the analytics, and for the listeners out there, uh, don't worry, I can't see who listens to it, um, but it provides details of, of how many downloads. And also, I clicked on locations as well, and I thought that was really interesting. So 84% of listeners were from New Zealand. Um, so that's really good, given that's most of our target audience, I would say. And then others in Australia, UK, US, Germany, Romania, Philippines, Argentina, which I love, I love Argentina, uh, Spain, um, Ireland, Turkey, and Singapore. And the one that surprised me out of the Five Eyes community is that I haven't seen anyone from Canada uh, down, download.
1: Mm. Oh well, you know it's cold up there at the moment. Perhaps they're all hibernating. But I think it also it it goes without saying that we should be saying, you know, and and we do uh, want to say thank you to all of you that have listened uh, and and are following us now. We really appreciate it. And as Martin said, um, we've got uh, we enjoyed uh, the first episode, and as lots of people will pick up and we've picked up it as well. There'll always be something to talk about. And we felt that that first episode uh, was uh, almost a scattergun approach where we uh, talked a a lot about a lot of different things without necessarily uh, finishing them off. And we did say that That offers the opportunity to go back to them in later episodes and talk in a bit more detail or focus solely on one or two of those things. But bearing in mind, as we've said, the success of what we've done so far and how we've both enjoyed the exercise, we thought we'd put something together before Christmas, before the end of the year. uh, and uh, we wanted to, to, to share that. So a little, little bonus episode mm-hmm. that, that Martin and I uh, are going to spend some time talking about perhaps our intelligence highlights of the year 2022 mm. um, yep. and having the opportunity to have a discussion about some of those, explain them. Uh, and talk about why they were perhaps significant from our perspective.
0: Yep, so definitely aiming to talk about the highlights. But uh, we should take a breath because it's been um, pretty uh, pretty good to see we've had a few questions. Uh, so that's some of them uh, via the email, some of them via direct messaging to our personal um Uh, messaging, WhatsApp account, so on. Uh, Nothing on the Twitter side interesting. I don't know if that's a a Twitter thing, if it's a New Zealand Security Matters thing, or if it's an Elon Musk thing. Um, I don't know. So, yes, Um, good to see some questions. Shall I um, start by putting some to you, Reese, or do you want to kick it off?
1: No, you fire off, Martin. Okay.
0: Well, what I noticed about uh, some of the questions coming in... uh, I think there was a few there, obviously, some of your past students or colleagues, they seem to really respect your knowledge and expertise on the subject matter. Uh, But then there's a question about how do you keep yourself current? So how do you keep yourself current? You've been out of the business for a while.
1: Yeah, and it's, I think, more than anything else, it's quite a frustrating particularly if you have been in the business at some stage so you know what's available and what's out there and what you've been working on and certain types of intelligence product and intelligence reports Uh, but you know the one the one issue with all of that of course is it's all classified sort of material and and you can't use it. Uh, you can't even recount it, uh, which is which is one of the sort of the big challenges. And it's one of the challenges that I found when I first started teaching, particularly you know teaching the subject of of intelligence. My first problem was what can I use to effectively and ably demonstrate what intelligence is what it does, why it doesn't, it, uh, and why it's important. So I can recall when I first joined the university thinking about this particular problem. And in a very short space of time, it became clear to me that I shouldn't have worried about this at all uh, because there is a wealth of material that's available in the public domain, whether you call it open-source material or or published in the form of memoirs or books. But I think increasingly, and we'll certainly talk about this, if not in this episode and subsequent episodes, there is this increasing uh, prevalence, uh, and, and it's an important point to make, that a whole bunch of intelligence agencies are far more proactive in terms of releasing information than they ever were in the past. And that's important for a variety of reasons, and we'll certainly get into those in this podcast at various times. So publicly released information is available. One of the other things that I noticed was that certainly some of the written material Articles, journal articles, academic articles, books have been authored or written by, I guess, people like me who were former intelligence practitioners. So they have a, a depth uh, or a unique uh, set of knowledges that enables them to write critically um, and accurately without necessarily disclosing uh, intelligence secrets or classified material, but one of the other things that that's important to note, and we teach this uh, uh, as well, uh, but you know, at university is, you know, you're at university to, and you get trained to critically think, um, and be able to discern fact from fiction, or what is correct, or what is not necessarily sort of correct, is something that we do all the time, and as a former intelligence practitioner, that's, I was professionally trained to do that. So some of those skills come in handy when I'm looking for material uh, to use for my sort of classes and to, as you say, stay, stay current uh, and relevant. What that means is that I can use uh, material that's credible without necessarily having to go to places like WikiLeaks or seeing a whole bunch of Edward Snowden sort of downloads, because I know that a lot of my students are very uncomfortable when um, I mention those sorts of names or those that sort of material, which is technically, as we know, still classified, even though it's been publicly released or leaked or disclosed. So there are some sensitivities there, but To answer your question, there's sufficient material out there that makes me think that someone like me, even being out of the business for so long, there is uh, a sufficient amount of material that will enable us to think about intelligence and intelligence problems in a credible and accurate way. Okay. On Uh, top of that, sorry, I'll just finish off. Um, on top of that, and and, and I apologise for that. That's me as an academic. Once you ask me a question, it's really difficult to get an <laughs> academic to shut up. And, and you're seeing firsthand, listener uh, listeners, uh, just what happens. But what I'd say in terms of finishing it off this comments set of comments off is on top of that, you have people who are willing to sort of talk about their experiences, or talk, um, or offer. Their views and things in a in a general way without sort of disclosing things, and I'm talking about people like you, Martin. You know that have uh, direct experience and have a, a have an awful lot of experience, um, but can talk about these things as we've sort of said early on in an in, in a balanced and considered way. Uh...
0: I can't add much value to what you said in terms of keeping myself current. I'm three years out. Uh, I still need, yeah, for my personal interests and in my professional life, I still need to understand what's happening in the New Zealand security sector and I followed exactly the same processes as you. Uh, There's another question here, a pretty frank one, uh, from a .com.au address, so I'm guessing it's an Australian. New Zealand appears to be a soft target for extremist attacks. Why is this? And then it continues. Are the New Zealand agencies up to the challenge of dealing with this proactively?
1: Did you want to kick that off or shall I do you, do you want get, me to kick that off you know, uh, And again uh, as, yeah, as, an, as you know in terms of a a former practitioner, a current academic, you know I would be saying, well, you know can you provide a bit more context to that sort of broad, very broad brush sort of statement at the start that New Zealand is a soft target? What what would the what do you think, Martin, the writer might mean by sort of describing New Zealand as a soft target? Is he or she? Uh, are they talking about say March 15, the the Linmore attack? Um, I suspect that's I exact, don't know
0: exactly what they're talking about. Um, and of course, you know, there probably was quite a lot of publicity uh, with the um, the occupation of Parliament earlier this year. Uh, where you know some yeah, yeah. Uh, some just didn't know where that might end. Um, so, I, I, I suspect it's uh, an aggregation of all of those. What I would say is that um, <laughs> the um, I'm, I'm, I'm just shaping shaping that uh, shaping it right. Because it ties in with what you said before about no-one knows about the successes. And actually, NZSIS in its annual report has been a lot more transparent about some of the disruptions that they've done to take people off an extremist pathway. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of successes there. I think the the perennial difficulty that we're in in this day and age is spotting the lone actor in the small cells um, because they can be, as I think you called it before – in the earlier episode, Hiding in Plain Sight, we just simply won't see them because their behaviour does look quite normal. It makes it extremely difficult for the agencies to find uh, such people. You know, there
1: can't be more... Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more. There's a wonderful quote that former CIA director, NSA director Michael Hayden Mm -hmm. once said, um, and, uh, you know, he was asked the question, why did it take so long to find Osama bin Laden when you know the might of you know the US intelligence community and the US military was was looking looking for him in real earnest and Hayden's response was simply because he was hiding and he didn't want to be found and so you know if people are hiding if they want to if they want to keep things secret um, then it makes it that much harder to find out what somebody ha- has done. And that's a perennial problem that security agencies face, law enforcement agencies face, face too, is how do you find something before it happens and how do you stop it before it
0: happens? So what I would say is, is I absolutely disagree that New Zealand is not a soft target for extremist attacks um, and the New, Z- New Zealand agencies are up to the challenge. It is extremely difficult uh, it needs the work with the public, and I'm going to come on to that later when I talk about uh, one of my one of my highlights. There needs to be a, a strong uh, collaboration um, with the public on this because this threat vector around lone actors and small cells is unlikely to go away anytime soon. What else have we got, Reese,
1: on the questions? Let me just have a look. Sorry, I've just lost my my little cheat sheet. Yeah, Martin, uh, just bear with me. Well, while you're looking
0: for that, I can see uh, one there about um about what. Oh,
1: here it is. Here it is. Sorry about well, that. I'll, no.
0: I'll just I'll just because this is a pretty quick one. Um, oh, okay. it was a, a question um, direct to my messaging actually, which was, what's a, a customer of intelligence? Because I talked about it a lot in the in the other episode. Um, so, yeah, listeners. That is someone who uses the intelligence it could be an intelligence analyst who takes that as a, who takes some intelligence in as um, as, as one of many uh, from from multiple sources and turns that into an assessed intelligence product but it can also be intelligence going straight to decision makers to help them uh, through a decision making process so that's a, a customer you have the providers of intelligence which are the intelligence agencies. Uh, and then you have customers who consume it and, and make decisions or provide
1: analysis. Can you give, give us or give the listeners a couple of examples of, of actual customers, Martin? Um, yeah, that,
0: that's, it was in that uh, fact sheet that we posted. So starting right from the top, it can be the Prime Minister, it can be the other ministers, um, uh, people in, in, in those agencies like the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Uh, who use that intelligence to help them uh, understand the context and, in some cases, help them make specific decisions. And on the analytical side, we have the National Assessments Bureau, for example, we have defence intelligence staff, uh, there's intelligence staff and the police, and they use the products also for specific decision-making but also to use it uh, by their own intelligence uh, analysts to create an analysed product, and to help decision makers make decisions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about in the private sector? Um, that's it's. I mean, private sector we tend to talk more about insights rather than intelligence, um, but it's the same thing. It's. And, you know, I talked last week about uh, intelligence uh, being from classified sources. It, it doesn't need to be, of course. It can be from open source. Um, but it is about getting insights, making sense of it, helping decision makers to make decisions. That's essentially what it is. And yeah, it's heavily used in the private sector, but but more cast as as insights. But it's the same process. What is it that we need to know? Well, what is it we need to know? Why? How do we get it? And then how do we how do we make use of it?
1: Yep absolutely couldn't couldn't agree with you more and again you know quite often for some of my undergraduate students I sort of ask them you know or tell them we're all intelligence customers or intelligence consumers anyone who's used Google Maps <laughs> That's, yeah. that's, in, that's intelligence, yeah. right? Yeah. So you've got information, uh, you need that information for a reason, you need to get to be, and you use that data uh, to achieve your objective. Mm-hmm. So again, intelligence is all around us. It's not just sort of secret, uh, which is a lot of the stuff that we'll be sort of talking about, but it's, it's important to understand where that is and what it works. And for for people to understand just what intelligence is, and we started to talk about that the uh, the previous sort of episode defining intelligence. Anyway, that's that's really useful. One of the other questions, Martin, that we've seen come in, one of them particularly to you, I thought this was interesting when when I read it was uh, related to how you I think it was described as deftly avoided talking about the work you did while in the community Mm. and you talked about your journey into the to the New Zealand community but not about what you did and for how long in any great detail are you able to talk a little bit more about that you're able to tease that out a little (laughs) bit more
0: (laughs) yeah well I've been caught out there haven't I because you know some of the techniques that we use as intelligence officers and former intelligence officers that is that um, we try to obfuscate or gloss over things uh, that we don't particularly want to talk about in the hope that people don't pick up on that, but obviously a listener uh, has. So, yeah, I didn't talk uh, a lot about what I'd done and I don't um, intend to go into any detail, but, no, it was a 27-year career, uh, like most of it. In fact, I remember when you started uh, on the desk uh, working against politically motivated violence targets what we would today term as violent extremism. Uh, And then that was it into a very operational career for the next uh, 17-ish years, uh, working uh, as a case officer, so out there uh, meeting people, uh, trying to um, elicit intelligence from them. Uh, I also worked in our technical operations area, and then that was the end of my sort of uh, operational phase and then into into leadership positions uh, and then left sort of 10 years after that culminating in a 27-year career.
1: Mm-hmm. Excellent. One of the things that listeners won't know was that I started uh, my career in the service about two months, about eight weeks after Martin joined. So... We've been we've known each other for a long time, and we started relatively young, um, and you know a fascinating time to to be in the intelligence business, particularly as it was, shall we say, pretty much you know the end of the Cold War, yeah. um, and, and there's still some legacies there. But of course, the interesting thing about that is that we're moving into a new era. Ooh. of perhaps state-on-state rivalry or great state competition that um, uh, that presents itself now. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more sort of detail. Mm. The other thing I heard, Martin, was that someone someone had said that, that you have something in common with Vladimir Putin.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what that is. Um, we both approached our respective intelligence agencies uh, as children, uh, wondering how in the future we could join. So Vladimir Putin did that uh, when he was in grade nine. Uh, So that would probably put him at, what, about 14, 15 or so. And, of course, I wrote my first letter when I was eight, the second at about 12. So, um, yep, that was the... I actually found out recently we have something else in common. Um... We both... You and I, or you oh, and Vladimir? Vladimir Putin. So what I'd heard yeah. is that when he wanted to become operational, he completely cocked up uh, his assessment centre. Um, and you know so the assessment centre is something you go through to assess if you're capable uh, of being an operational officer. And um, that's something that I had done as well, uh, first time around, because I was... You talked about our early days, and there were some cold warriors there. And I just, you know, bear in mind, I wanted to do this since I was a child, and I'd looked at those people, and I just, all I wanted was to be like them. Um, so I finally got my shot at at proving how I could be just like them and be a cold warrior and and do these fantastic things that I'd heard that they had done. Um, but I was so nervous about the whole thing that I completely cocked it up. Um, and and didn't didn't progress at that time but um you know gosh i learned the lesson from that and went away and reflected and it's what we all need to do just be yourself and so Indeed. next time Indeed. next time around i was i just I was myself i didn't try to copy anyone else and i got through it much better um, leading into being able to pursue an operational career so that was i only found that one out recently that's um
1: it's interesting that uh, perhaps had Vladimir Putin reflected a little bit more after his first rejection, we might not be in the situation that we see ourselves in in 2022. Which I think is 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 a good point to to take a wee break yeah. now. And when we come back, we'll start to talk about our highlights, our intelligence highlights for 2022 welcome back um as we said uh before the end of the uh, break We're going to spend the rest of this podcast talking about what we think might be our intelligence highlights of 2022. And I don't know about you, everyone else out there, but it seems like the year has really whizzed by. And there's lots of things that have happened. Um, And so, Martin, I wonder if you could kick things off by talking about what you think might be one of the key highlights that you've picked up or observed True. Uh, sure. Yeah, and it's good.
0: Good that you know we decided to talk, um, have this episode yesterday, so I had a bit of time to have a really, really good think about it. But then it actually didn't take that long um, because my absolute standout uh, was the CIA, or actually, you know, the wider United States intelligence community, or USIC, as I'll, I'll refer to it. Um, the USIC effort uh, on on Ukraine. Yeah, the foresight here was just outstanding, and that's despite the assurances from Vladimir Putin that he wouldn't invade Ukraine, but he did, and he did it on the 24th of February. I was actually one of those who predicted in January uh, that he would invade, but actually there's nothing special there. It looked pretty obvious to me with that amassing of the troops. Um, But I've got to say, actually, my analysis of the knock-on effects afterwards um, were far more catastrophic than what uh, thankfully, uh, than what the reality is. You know, I really did think this was going to lead to wide-scale war uh, in Europe and that we would see the use of some sort of nuclear, chemical or biological uh, weapon, and thankfully that, that hasn't happened yet. Um,
1: uh, that, that's an interesting sort of set of perspectives, which is rather a little bit sort of negative and, and catastrophizing. but... Um, but I wonder whether that is sort of something that intelligence practitioners actually quite actually do in terms of thinking about worst case scenarios, yeah. and looking at things from a glass half empty perspective. Is that a fair enough comment? Well, I'm, th- I'm, gl- I'm glad your assessment was wrong. Yeah. As as is everyone else, but yeah. but but getting to that sort of conclusion is that something that is. Uh, is what intelligence people do yep and, and
0: and in short, I will say yes, um, that's what happens because you know we do see the darker side of some of these these world leaders uh, so that does that does happen, but I'm going to throw that one back to you as well because I've listened to you on one of your other podcasts you've got a form of words for that um, Do you remember it it's about flowers
1: Oh. Yes, yes, and this yeah I think that, and it comes from uh, a former Deputy CIA Director again, uh, John McLaughlin, uh, who uh, basically sort of said this or he talked about intelligence analysts, but I think it applies across the board to, to the intelligence practitioner community at large, and, and he said this: intelligence officers are trained to smell the flowers and then go looking for the funeral. Um, uh, it's it's their job to find problems or identify issues, uh, and they feel like they have failed when they don't, or when something sort of goes bang. And I think that's really really important when it comes to to intelligence, because you're you're thinking like that yeah. a lot of the time. All right, so going back to the USIC in, in
0: Ukraine. Uh, I, I feel like that is that is a rebirth, if you like, of the trust uh, of intelligence uh, in the in, in the USIC um, by, by the American policy machine. I think it's a fantastic demonstration of the nexus between intelligence agencies, the policy machine, and the war machine, and it's just yep. such a good example of, of
1: when it works well. Look. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more and I think I'd like to take it a couple of steps further because you can include the United Kingdom Ministry of Defence Intelligence uh, assessments that were made available to the wider public. All you have to do is go on, on to, onto Google and look at the defence intelligence assessments that were publicly made available And the predictions that the British and the Americans had about what the Russians were going to do, what they were planning to do, were really uh, spot on. And I heard someone describe it the other day to me as a real masterclass. And it demonstrates that where intelligence can have a real effect and an impact on, on the world and where it's really, really important. And... I'll, I'll, I'll just sort of, you know, there's a couple of points there that I want to sort of add to to, to emphasise this or, or illustrate this. You know, we see in, in February and March how, as you said, Martin, the Americans are remarkably, remarkably accurate uh, with their predictions on when the Russians were going to do what, what they mm-hmm. did. But as you see... This intelligence or the disclosure of this intelligence, making it publicly available, has a real impact or an effect in the sense that... The Russians had limited resources. They only had sufficient food and fuel for a particular, uh, you know, for, for their invasion. So everything was structured and planned down to the nth degree based on, and we know this in terms of the history of warfare, just on the logistics that are available. But the the release of the intelligence, the American, the British intelligence estimates at that right time, at that exact time, saw the Russians delay going into Ukraine by three days. Now, three days doesn't seem important, but when you think about the logistics, then it becomes really, really uh, pertinent. What I mean by this is that For three days, the Russians weren't too sure because the Americans and the Brits had disclosed what they were about to do. They weren't too sure whether they were going to go or not. They did ultimately in three days. But for those three days, the Russians waited. Because it was winter, they had to keep all their vehicles and tanks and that sort of thing warm. And so they were all idling. Now, that took up three days' worth of fuel, which ultimately sees that the Russians weren't able to get to Kiev, when, which was part of their plan. So you see how intelligence has a real effect and an impact in a real-world sort of scene. And we've seen it a couple of times. I think it's really important because it's, it's a generational intelligence success in the same way that you could say perhaps 2003, uh, the Americans and, and uh, listeners will will recall uh, Colin Powell, who was the American Secretary of State at, at the time, at the UN Security Council, sort of identifying the Iraqi sort of weapons of mass destruction threat and using intelligence as the evidence, and this takes us back to a previous episode, to justify what they were doing. Now, of course, that subsequently becomes clear that that intelligence was fabricated by a single sort of source, so it may not necessarily be the best example to use. But I'll go back to uh, Adlai Stevenson, the US Secretary of State in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis and those iconic aerial... Photos, so geoint, geospatial intelligence as it's known now, so satellite pictures or the U 2 sort of overflights, identifying that the Soviets had in fact fibbed and they did have a ballistic missile nuclear capability presence in Cuba, which I think is fair to say that that prevented. Uh, a global conflict as well. And again, another real-world example of the significance and the importance of intelligence uh, that we see in history. Well, we're on the same page, and
0: that's for sure. Um, I certainly think CIA, the USIC, had a lot to call back after uh, Iraq and, and some of their predictions in Afghanistan, and I really think that they they achieved that. I think it was so important... Um, to get this right, because when you look at Crimea in 2014 and how little, uh, how few consequences uh, Putin faced because of that, I think the international community, led by the US in this case, uh, really had to make a decision. We need to do something now because Putin will not stop. And they had to send Mm -hmm. a lesson to other autocrats as well, that um, autocrats, I think, were thinking that uh, the West was getting weak after the Trump years, after Brexit, turmoil in British politics, retirement of Angela Merkel and the move to Olaf Scholz, which has actually gone quite well, um, I think. Mm -hmm. These are all things that would have caused Putin to think, to scoff, the West won't be able to respond. They didn't respond very strongly when I invaded uh, Crimea. Uh, and they won't do so this time. Well, wow, well, they got it wrong. And the intelligence allowed for the US to build a strong partnership, uh, and and um, get that alignment and have a, such a strong coalition against um, Putin. And I think it's really hard to overstate um, how uh, difficult it must be for the US. You know, Putin is a is a closed shop. I don't think he confides in that many people. Um, if, if any at all, and, and I can remember being in that position when I was thinking about North Korea in the mid-1990s, what do you do if the autocratic leader doesn't actually share his thinking? It's really hard to get any insights or
1: intelligence to, to help decision makers. Yep, and, and that's why we know that there are some you know really hard nuts to crack out there in the intelligence world in terms of you know targets or adversaries they they're really difficult because they're closed societies or closed shops it's really hard and they're you know they're they're uber paranoid as well so it goes back to you know the Hayden comment that I mentioned earlier you know people are de- you know are hiding things or they do you know, they're protecting uh, their interests, and so they're watching for someone to find out, which makes it really difficult to actually crack some of these intelligence targets. And the same applies to perhaps organised crime or or other other issues or, or challenges that might be sort of perhaps a little bit closer to home. Interesting.
0: Uh, uh, just finally, what does it mean to New Zealand? Well, I again, three years, Um so not involved in any way whatsoever, but I suspect there was a ferocious appetite in the New Zealand intelligence community for um, for intelligence on on Ukraine. And um, I think that uh, the the sharing probably did happen because New Zealand moved pretty strongly uh, and pretty quickly uh, in the face of this Russian aggression Uh, brought in the Russia Sanctions Act. And bearing in mind, that is a fantastic piece of work when you think of how complicated that is, um, it took a long time uh, for it to come, but that was from a standing start. New Zealand does not, you know, up until that point, New Zealand did not have an autonomous sanctions regime, uh, and so it had to be started from scratch. And I think uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade and, and wider government, I don't know who else was involved, did a really good job of, of implementing that. It was also the deployment of trainers, um, and uh, deployment of intelligence staff as well. So yeah, you know.
1: I, th- I think, yeah, I think that's really important as as a sort of a, an external sort of a observer. again, you know when the rubber hits the road or there is a crisis, you know you think about what is it that you can deploy as quickly as possible, uh, because you know building up forces takes time, and we've seen that in the history of the world. but when when there's a requirement, when there's a call for support, um, New Zealand has, you know, a, a number of options. There, you know, but they are limited sort of options. Mm. Um, and so uh, we see, particularly this year, that New Zealand commits uh, an intelligence capability through NZDF primarily, but I imagine that there would be others involved in that. Um, and that scene is really valuable to our partners. And and can actually provide some real effect in the same way that the New Zealand Army trainers have gone over to the UK recently as well. So I think that demonstrates the, the, the importance of intelligence, but also the importance and the capability of New Zealand intelligence. And they can hold their own. Yeah, right. Yep. So, so that's really good. That's
0: all, really good. It's an A-plus example for me. Uh great intelligence to decision-makers helping to map their way through ambiguity and at pace. But I will just make one more point on that. Uh, There's quite a bit of – quite a few ex-CIA officers who spoke out against uh, the U.S. celebrating this intelligence success. Mm, Because Uh, – Yeah, well, it's because uh, they believe that actually speaking of such – Successes can make intelligence gathering more difficult in the future. And actually, by the way, why would we want to poke the bear, so to speak? Uh, so I, I actually agree with that, and I think it reinforces that agencies can't talk about their successes.
1: Yeah, but again, we're you know we have this discussion all all the time, and I actually enjoy it because we have some really good sort of backwards and forwards. You because know, I think that you know, here's an example of a real-world situation, a problem that is so important and so significant. If it means that you're going to reveal sources or disclose them, that is is outweighed by the the importance of your objective and a more sort of strategic. Uh, objective so if you have to sacrifice a source a particular source and it might be the fact that there is you know some sort of i don't know uh stealthy drone that's being developed and can take sort of photos or images and and that sort of thing that your adversary or enemy doesn't doesn't know, but there are times when it's just important to disclose that information for the greater good. And I think now is an example of that. As I have said, you know we've seen it in the past. Nineteen sixty-two was another sort of classic example. Um, and, but again, it's 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 a dilemma that decision makers have from time to time uh, because as we've discussed, getting sources or using sources or, or or cultivating sources, you know, whether they be human ones or developing uh, intelligence technology, whether it be a spy satellite or whatever, does take time to develop time and resource. And once uh, that's been jeopardised, then perhaps you can't use it again and you've got to start all over or you've got to think of another way in which you can collect that intelligence. It's tricky. It's yeah. not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, but uh, sometimes it, it, it is done mm.
0: yep well sources are hard to get easy to lose so yeah it is yep. it is very tricky for sure All
1: right, I think uh, yep I, I'm gonna have a go yeah uh, I think uh, I liked uh it, it's it's interesting to see the sort of the Fallout of the the Russian invasion, and there was a whole bunch of expulsions of Russian intelligence officers throughout sort of Europe and the Americas, uh, all over the place. You know, uh, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, Poland, Bulgaria kicked out seventy sort of Russian diplomats 70. in June. Um, you know, uh, Ireland expels. For diplomats who met with Brazil uh, with Irish paramilitaries, so again uh, there is sort of examples of Russian intelligence, and that has you know has been sort of significant. Watching watching that, the other thing I just sort of throw in here, Martin. Sorry, um, you know we're talking about the success of accurately predicting things, uh, and in terms of predicting the Russian invasion, one of the interesting feeds I got, and I. I'm pretty sure it's accurate, although I received it on the 1st of April uh, this year, um, was the French director of military intelligence was sacked uh, because he failed to predict the Russian invasion. Uh, So, again, sometimes it just demonstrates that sometimes you get things right and sometimes you get them wrong and there might be a cost. Anyway, I just want to finish off by my sort of, I think, intelligence highlight of the year. And it relates to the text of a defence pact between the PRC, the Chinese, and the Solomon Islands that appeared online in late March uh, this year. And, of course, the pact, the agreement, centred on uh, law enforcement and military cooperation between the Chinese and the Solomon Islands, including things like training programmes and joint exercise opportunities. And so this document, this draft document, was publicly sort of released via uh, media, uh, social media sort of sources, and then was picked up by the media. In New Zealand, this comes as something of a surprise. Uh, The the New Zealand uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Defence, including the Prime Minister, um, uh, are taken by surprise as to this this announcement. Um, And other countries like Australia sort of uh, admit that uh, this is a bit of a sort of surprise uh, for their Uh, from their perspective as well. They weren't sort of expecting it. We can talk about that, but what I wanted to add is about a month later, we start to see in the Australian media, they start reporting that the Australian intelligence community was actually well aware of this planned agreement, this planned pact. And not only that, they had known about it for some months in advance, and then australian intelligence community decided to quote encourage a leak from within the solomons um, in the hope that the leak might um, dissuade the two uh, states from uh, from agreeing to or signing uh, the the agreement because in the end it didn't work uh, so, so they did si- sign it, uh, which perhaps suggests, you know, as we've talked about uh, on this episode, sometimes releasing of intelligence works, sometimes it it doesn't. So again, it's an important point for me, uh, rather than sort of debating how that might have happened or why that might have happened, but it's this it's this point that intelligence is this kind of imperfect science and there's no guarantees that it's going to work uh, or, or not. although everyone's objective, of course, in the intelligence community is to achieve a positive outcome, whether that be to ensure that the world stays sort of free from violence and risk, uh, or that you know intelligence decisions or insights, preempt or enable decision makers to make better sort of decisions uh, and again it sort of goes back to our some of the comments that we've made sort of previously that you know sometimes it doesn't work and that's when we sort of see it more than anything else uh, because because we only tend to hear about intelligence failures but other times intelligence is used and it is is seen as a success
0: so do you really believe the New Zealand system? Was didn't know about it beforehand.
1: Oh, I don't know. I'd I'd be scratching my head. I think it's you know it's convenient to sort of play dumb. But again, you know, one of the things that we need to sort of think about uh, when it comes to talking about intelligence is where intelligence sort of fits, and it's just a part of the grander sort of scheme of things. And it's well and it's all well and good for a large power or the largest superpower that the world has ever seen pointing the finger at a smaller state uh, that has uh, certain capabilities that could make life sort of difficult, saying, hey, stop that. It's a different kettle of fish for a smaller country sort of pointing the finger or standing up to a bigger sort of superpower and saying, you're wrong. And so, you know, and that's the challenge you have with a country like New Zealand to sort of have, you know, deals with, uh, the PRC or or other larger sort of powers around the world. Just what can you say?
0: I, I'm just struggling, Reese. I, I can't see how the New Zealand system can't have known about it in some way beforehand. You know, even if you just look at the posts in the in the South Pacific, there must have been rumours. even if it was just rumours swirling around. Um, I yeah, I, I really struggle. I, look. When I saw it, I'd really struggled that there kind of being been some sort of heads up at all.
1: Mm-hmm. But again, you know, that, that goes back to the fact that, you know, intelligence practitioners, you can provide the intelligence products, you can give it, um, you know, a complete or we're as confident as we can absolutely be with this or a grading system or an A1 to use the old uh, naval code yeah. for, for grading sort of intelligence. But if the decision maker doesn't use it or doesn't believe it, then it becomes sort of nothing. And I think this goes to your your point when you're talking about some of the sort of the former American intelligence people sort of lamenting the fact that 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 intelligence was being disclosed and you know, if you don't use it, then what's the point? There's this really good quote um, by written by uh, Max Hastings, Sir Max Hastings, uh, in, in a book that he wrote called The Secret War. Um, and it says something like this. It's intelligence, like money, maybe be secure when it's unused and locked <laughs> up in a safe, but it yields no dividends until it is invested. <laughs> Um, and I, think we've, I haven't heard that think, before. Yeah, and I think good. we've seen a, a couple of good examples of yeah. that uh, this this year. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I've got one more, um,
0: and it's the release of the Indicators of Violent Extreme- Extremism by NZSIS on the 27th of October. It's yep. titled Know the Signs, a Guide for Identifying Signs of Violent Extremism. It's pretty cool. It's based on research dating back to 2006. Uh, it's identifying the common behaviours um, that that uh, NZSIS had seen in, in uh, investigations since since that time. Uh, they also validated it with overseas experience. And then they grouped the the um, indicators into seven things, which I won't go into here. I mean, we can cover that in a... In a, in a future episode because we're just trying to focus on the highlights. I think it ties in with the question from Australia that we had uh, that, you know, the public, well, my point was that the public need to be better enabled to understand what it looks like when someone's on a pathway to violent extremism because you Zealand agencies can't monitor the internet. They can't go into all the chat rooms Um People's behaviour changes over time, and the best way to 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 identify that is when another human sees it, and they see that that behaviour has crossed the line. It's see something, say something. Or in my other life, I I I talk about if it feels weird, report it. So I'm really happy to see it out there. Uh, I've been harping on about it a lot when I was in the in the community. Um, certainly, put a, a link to it in this in the in the blurb for this episode. Uh, unfortunately, for that one, I, I do put it as an A minus because I actually really do think it's a great piece of work. It's beautifully presented. It's punchy. It's sharp, and it's usable. But what's the plan? Um, what's the plan to keep it alive? Um, how do we have it so it's not just a blip in, in, in history, and, and that people can actually continue to access it, continue to use it? And if I knew more about that plan, then, um, then uh, certainly that would be in the A to A plus range because it's a, a really impressive piece of work.
1: I thought I was a generous marker when it comes to giving grades. Oh out. no,
0: Reese, I'm actually dysfunctionally optimistic. Um, that's yeah, that's 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 my problem. It's not it's not generosity. It's just that I
1: have an overly optimistic disposition. Because <laughs> my question to you in terms of pushing back is, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. I think this is really good and I think this is this is really important and valuable. Um, what's the long game? And perhaps it's more linked with perhaps some of the national security strategies or the counter te- countering terrorism and violent extremism strategies that have been produced in the last couple of years. But I don't know if they're linked but more importantly, my question is, is this the job of the Security Intelligence Service? Should they be doing this? I thought SIS was an intelligence collection agency. Why are they taking on this role? Shouldn't they be more working on collecting intelligence? And they know they know what a violent extremist looks like because they've published this. But shouldn't they be be uh, be working in that particular space. You, you really, should, should this should this role be better suited for some analytical or assessments uh, yeah. mechanism that we have here?
0: Yeah, you, you've actually um, blindsided me with that one because I, I listen to you, and my automatic response is to agree with you. Uh, that that is possibly the work of some other agency, and maybe some of the recommendations out of the Royal Commission into the Christchurch attack. You know, will will lead to uh, other entities that will do this sort of work. Uh, Maybe for the moment, the service saw a gap and saw that they were the right people to fill it, and and did it.
1: Yep. Um. Yeah. Or or um. No one else has done it. Yeah. Or, Or no one else is planning to do it. And again, just following on from there, I've had a cursory glance at the inspectors general review of the Lynn mall attack in mm-hmm. September 2021. And again, there's some real sort of identified sort of challenges or problems or issues there as well. And, The sense I got from it, and listeners, you can go to uh, the Intelligence Community website or the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, the IPCA sort of websites, and have a look at this. But the sense I get is... We'll post it into the episode. Oh, we'll post it. Yeah, Yeah. that's a good idea. That's a good idea. But I'm not convinced that the New Zealand National Security Framework or Community is as well joined up as perhaps it should be. And maybe here's, here's an example of of that that you know SIS, one of the primary premier agency responsible for investigations into terrorism and extreme violence, uh, has more material on the behaviours, the activities, experiences than anyone else, and they see it upon themselves to to produce this. And I'm like you, I applaud them. For, for doing this and making these sorts of uh, things available. Uh, just how easy or how many people are going to look at it is is the real sort of challenge. It's, it's but again, really, yep. that's the challenge that we know yep. that's out there and you know the very reason why we're doing this sort of podcast mm. is to, to make things a little bit more accessible because the community itself is, is doing that as well.
0: Good. Well, I think that brings us... Much to a close, do you think, Reese?
1: I think so. I think that's that's yeah. fair enough. I've worked hard this year. I'm sure you've worked hard this mm-hmm. year. You work hard every year. Thank Martin. you, thank and you. And a lot of our listeners have been working hard this year as yeah. well. And it hasn't been easy for anyone, uh, and and so we'll finish off there. Yeah. Uh, I think um, again, uh, thanking everyone. Actually, just before for, we go into us,
0: thanks, Rhys should we foreshadow what we'll talk about next time because you and I have talked about you know, given that we are having a transition of director general in the SIS next year that could be one of the things that we'll touch on
1: oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. just just to just to give you you know a pre-christmas christmas present you can open it up now
0: yeah
1: yep our, our next episode i think will be spent looking at intelligence leadership
0: yeah great that's uh, yeah Nice, pithy one. Sorry, I cut you off from your thank yous, but um, it, it actually was a bit of feedback uh, that we'd had as well uh, that we didn't foreshadow what was going to be in the next episode, um, in our first episode. So there we, we dealt with that feedback. So future future leadership um, in, in, the inter- in, in the intelligence community, something like that, isn't
1: it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Uh, and I think that will be really important.
0: Yep. yep. All right. Um, oh, well, thanks, Rhys, um, and... Yep, I signed off before and looking forward to seeing you in person uh, in early January and we can map out our next episode.
1: Me, me too, Martin. And to all our listeners out there, have a, have a good uh, Christmas, happy holidays um, and uh, good luck for everything in the new year. And that's when we will catch up again.
0: Very Merry Christmas. See you.